Turn with me to uh, Jeremiah as we continue our verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book studies through the Bible. We are uh, currently in the book of Jeremiah, and if you'd turn with me to chapter uh, 46, we begin a new section of Jeremiah. If there was ever a theme in, in Jeremiah that uh, kind of pops out, uh, we have a very clear one in Jeremiah chapter 46, all the way through 51. 46 through 51, these chapters are about the, the destruction, prophecies against the nations the nations around uh, Israel uh, during this time of Jeremiah's prophecy. So Jeremiah is gonna prophesy to these various nations. And so we have a, a lot of work ahead of us here because these are heavy duty chapters. Um, if you read the commentaries and, and uh, stuff, you, you see that um, a lot of the commentators call this a very dry section of scripture. Uh, they call it that. Um, and I, I'm afraid to call the Bible dry in any place because I feel like if I'm reading the Bible and it seems dry to me somehow, I think I'm missing something. Because the Bible is rich, and I've found that maybe even the driest passages of the Bible um, might just actually have really important stuff. You know, I, th I, I think of the, the genealogy in Genesis, you know, uh, there where, you know, the, the sons of basically all the way from Adam to Noah, um, are listed there. And as you look at the names of those guys listed, all their names basically spells out the gospel message in kind of an amazing, miraculous way. In Matthew chapter one, the, the, you know, there's, a, there's a scripture you can read if you're trying to fall asleep at night, the, the you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so begat so-and-so. Well, Dr. Ivan Panin back in the 1800s did a study. He was a mathematician and he spent his whole life realizing and finding something that's it's amazing, like, like you have to read his work. Uh, it's kind of an amazing thing. If you're a mathematician and you get into prime numbers and stuff like that, uh, you should check this guy out. Dr. Ivan Panin found that everything in the genealogy of you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter one is all in a multiple of seven. How many men there are, how many women are mentioned, how many uh, you know, um, Greek words and like it's, it's, an like, it's an amazing thing. It's something that we can't even really talk about because many of us don't know Greek or speak Greek. So it, it kind of falls you know, on, on deaf ears, we're just reading. But how can a genealogy that's a real genealogy of real people be so exact when it comes to the multiples of seven? It's like, it's almost like God says, I'm just gonna leave my fingerprints on the Bible so that nobody can claim it as a false book. If they want to, they can do it at their own peril. But the Lord says, I'm gonna leave my fingerprints on the most boring chapters. People go, that chapter. When we get to heaven, I bet we're gonna find some of the most boring chapters were probably packed with the most powerful nuggets of truth and we never even saw them. That's why it's worth digging. That's why it's fun going through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And you know, I, I have to say it, uh, not trying to be you know, brutal or anything, but you'll find that you won't find a lot of teaching series on Jeremiah chapter 46 through 51. Let's do a series on the destruction of Moab and Ammon and all these, city, these nations that some of them are extinct now. Like why would even, we even bring them up? What does it have to do with us? Well, I think we'll find, hopefully tonight, that uh, there's still much to do with us. And uh, remember, the Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament truth. Now, as dire as this passage of scripture really is, um, we might wanna sit up and take note that God is the God of not just the Jews, but I need to say this at the onset tonight, God is the God of the nations. You have to understand that. And God can do whatever he wants to with the nations. He can raise them up, he can put them down. He can give them power or he can weaken them. And he does, throughout the Bible, God does what he wants with the nations. And it just so happens that the nation of the Jews, Israel, God's chosen people, God has made everlasting covenants and promises not to completely destroy them, but to let them survive and actually eventually make of them the mightiest of nations. But not every nation gets that honor of being blessed uh, with a everlasting covenant from God. So that's kind of an interesting thing here. We're gonna see some curses upon nations, but there's a few little nations here that kind of go with some interesting parenthetical ideas that we're gonna look at that'll be kind of, I think, interesting. So we've got the, the, the destruction of these nations. Now, by the way, if you remember in Jeremiah chapter uh, one, 
uh, and I think it's verse five, it says that Jeremiah, let me just read it to you. It says, before I formed thee in thy belly, in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I have ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Isn't it interesting that, uh, that you know, Jeremiah gets that um, interesting uh, delineation on his life while he was being formed in his mother's womb. Um, you know, the Lord says, I'm forming you in your mother's womb to be a prophet to the nations. Not any of the other real prophets got that delineation. It was Jeremiah that goes as the prophet to the nations, not just Israel. Now, the first section of Jeremiah mostly is about, you know, Israel. But now we're gonna have these many chapters given to the nations and we're gonna see what God has to say to these nations. Now, keep in mind, some of these nations were enemies of Israel and caused great harm and hurt to Israel. And God's gonna say, you guys are going down for that. Because one of the things that's a rule in the Bible is God blesses the nations that bless Israel and he curses the nations that curse Israel. And I believe that's not only true in the Bible, but it's also true today. If you are a, a nation that blesses Israel, you'll find yourself blessed. But when you curse Israel, you're gonna be cursed. And there's been interesting studies done and books written actually on this topic. Um, there's a book, uh, um, what's it called? Eye of the Storm. Is that right? Who, who remembers? It's, it's eye to eye or eye of the storm. Um, I should have looked this up beforehand, but uh, I'm talking about stuff I wasn't planning on talking about. Um, but uh, this guy wrote this whole book on, on uh, basically matching point for point when we treated Israel good and when we've treated Israel bad. And you can track catastrophic things that have happened in our nation and our country's history that were linked to activities that we were doing good, bad, or ugly to Israel. And it's, it's kind of a profound thing. It, it, it really just, once again, proves that God's word is true. That's why, you know, I'm always concerned. One of the biggest issues when I, you know, cast my vote for the president of the United States, whether it matters or not, I don't know. But um, uh, when you cast your vote for the president, uh, you know, um, uh, one of the things, along with abortion, one of the things I, I really look at is um, what is the posture toward the nation Israel? Because that's a huge thing for just being biblical, but also for our nation, whether we're gonna be successful or not. Um, uh, well, Brett, you shouldn't talk politics about who you're voting for. So, well, I'm not talking about anybody. I'm just saying um, these are not political issues. These are theological issues. Um, I always get weary when people say, you shouldn't talk political issues. Uh, the things I talk about here are theological issues that politicians have stolen and they've come up on the wrong side usually uh, of, of those issues. So I hope you understand that. Pastors can talk about theologicals. In my opinion, pastors can talk about whatever we want and I'm not worried about that. Uh, but if you're gonna come at me with those stupid things, uh, use your noggin just for a second, at least, please. One, one second of your noggin use would be great. But yeah, abortion, not a political issue. That is a theological issue. Um, I even read tonight that Jeremiah, as he's being formed in his mother's womb, was already ordained a prophet by God. That should do enough right there to end the discussion on abortion. God uh, forms a, a child in the mother's womb and it, that, it's a life, it's a person, and the Bible declares it that way. It's only um, you know, our Planned Parenthood and a bunch of people that are saying it's not a life. We'll get into that maybe even more tonight since we're on death and destruction. Um, but all that to say, uh, be careful. Don't, don't be you know, weak when it comes to theological issues. I, I fear that, that um, the church has become fearful. I fear that we've become afraid to talk about things that might be deemed political when they're actually just theological issues. Don't, don't be afraid of their faces. Do you remember when Jeremiah was a young man and he was afraid to, to speak and the Lord says, don't be afraid of their faces. Just speak the truth, speak my word. And Jeremiah grew to be a prophet that wasn't afraid to tell it like it is. And I, I like Jeremiah for that. Well, as we dive into this, the first uh, nation um, that we're gonna come here to is the nation Egypt. Uh, um, and um, let's take a look. There in chapter 46, verse one. It says there, the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, and against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. 
Now, this is speaking about a very famous battle, actually. Um, now, this chapter in talking about Egypt, uh, for you historians, uh, is divided into kind of two sections. One is before the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, and one is after. Um, basically, the first section, verses one uh, all the way through verse 12, is before Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed. The Lord's gonna speak about Egypt there. And then in verses 13 to the end of this chapter, it's gonna be after the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah and what's gonna to happen to the Egyptians there, okay? So you kind of see that. But this battle of Carchemish uh, mentioned in verse two, the Egyptians uh, led by Pharaoh Necho against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at this place uh, called Carchemish. Now, you can look this up. It was 605 BC when this took place. So this is, in fact, before the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem was 586 BC. Remember, the numbers go backwards because we're talking BC. So 605 is older than 586, just, just so you know. But uh, all that to say, this battle is famous. What was going on, by the way, is interesting historically. Um, during uh, 607-ish BC, Egypt was really one of the greatest world powers. Maybe you could arguably say bigger and more powerful than the Babylonians. And the Assyrians, well, their heyday was about 100 years earlier. They were really powerful about 100 years earlier, but they were on the decline. The Assyrians were on the decline, almost uh, weakened to a non-issue. Uh, Babylon was on the rise. Egypt was ultimately in power at this time. The Egyptians, everybody feared Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptians. But there's an interesting thing that we don't know much about. And it has to do with the Egyptians having conquered a huge section of the world at that time. Um, but for some reason, right around 607-ish BC, uh, Pharaoh Necho just withdrew his troops, just brought the boys home. Uh, why did they do that? Well, there's, there's speculation uh, as to why Pharaoh Necho did it. We don't really know. Uh, maybe people were just weary of warfare and maybe politically Pharaoh Necho was having a hard time getting the army to sustain itself. And they had so much region of land to be worried about. They, they maybe were overstretched. Some people argue that. So Pharaoh Necho withdrew all his troops from that region of the world. Uh, up even as far as the Euphrates River. That's how far the Egyptians had moved, you know, north, uh, northeast. So they withdrew. But what happened is that left a huge vacuum in that whole um, Middle East. Um, and so it was ripe for the up and coming Babylonians uh, to come and take over those areas the Egyptians had just occupied uh, and just fled for no real reason. Nobody really drove them out. So the Egyptians, maybe they were seeing the writing on the wall with the Babylonians, but nobody really knows why they withdrew. Um, but it left a, the, a room for the Babylonians to conquer and pillage and plunder, and they did. That, all, that decisive battle about the Babylonians and the Egyptians, when did the Babylonians actually become the most powerful nation in the world? Probably this battle would be the mark where that happened. Uh, that's mentioned here, Carchemish, there in verse two, very famous battle. So now Egypt, the Lord's saying, you guys are gonna be judged uh, for the things you've done. So, um, so this is the situation. And then we see prophecy number one before the fall of Judah, verse three. It says, order ye the buckler and the shield and draw near to battle, harness the horses and get up ye horsemen and stand forth with your helmets. You know, furbish the spears and put on the... Um, these, this word brigadines is uh, coats of mail is the idea there. And verse five, wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned away back? And their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace and look not back. For fear was around about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this that cometh up as a flood, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt rises like a flood, and his waters are moved like the rivers. And he saith, I will go up, and I will cover the earth, and I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Come ye up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, and Ethiopians and the Libyans that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle the bend and bend the bow. 
For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries, and the sword shall devour, and it shall be, it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up into Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. The nations have heard of thy shame, and thy cry hath filled the land, for the mighty man hath stumbled against the mighty, and they are fallen both together. So here we see, you know, this basically saying that the, you know, the, the, the Egyptians are gonna lose the battle at, you know, Karchemish, and, uh, and basically they're gonna, you know, the, the mighty are fallen. This is kind of the, oh, how the mighty have fallen kind of moment. These guys were noted to be the strongest in the world but now they're toast. Can I just say, one of the things that's interesting if you study world history, these nations that become so mighty, they're almost always destroyed by a lesser powerful group. Have you noticed that? Like if you're a history buff, it's, it's strange. You know, the Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they would be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. Um, the Babylonians were great, and, but they got you know, soft, and they started resting on their laurels in their mightiness, and the, the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes and the Persians had a lot of people, but technologically, they were far inferior to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, uh, you know, it'd be like if um, suddenly, you know, um, you know, Burma came and attacked the United States. You'd say, well, well that's not gonna be a problem for us, you know, but let's say we just got beat. We'd be stunned. Well, that's the way it was. You know, the Babylonians by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, the reason they dominated, they did have, you know, a huge army. But then they, they came to power, they were great, and they ruled that region of the world until a tiny little army, tiny, led by a giant uh, world leader, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had a tiny, tiny little army, and he conquered the whole known world with it, pretty much. I mean, it's amazing how the smaller usually defeats the greater. And there's a pattern in history of that. Uh, all that to say, um, we've seen that in modern time as well. And it should make us aware, as the United States, we've been a power, uh, powerful nation for many, many decades. Um, and it's kind of interesting to watch where our country goes. This is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds as we're reading God's judgment on the nations. Because I don't think the United States is necessarily gonna be exempt from the righteousness of God and his judgment. Hopefully we can kind of know what the Lord's gonna do, uh, perhaps even by reading this. So this first half is about this battle specifically and the early days between the Babylonians and the Egyptians, the battle of Carchemish. But now we go, verse 13, it's the, after the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 13, the word that um, the Lord spake to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, should come and smite the land of Egypt. Declare ye in Egypt, and publish in Migdal, and publish in Noph, and Tapani, saying, say ye, stand fast, and prepare thee, for the sword shall devour round about thee. Question, most of the Jews that are alive are now in Babylon in captivity when this prophecy is being talked about. But who is down at this area that verse 14 just, you know, we talked about Migdal and Naf, Tapanese. Who else is down there? Anybody remember? Jeremiah, along with a tiny remnant of the Jews are in Tapanese and in Egypt right now. So this prophecy that Jeremiah is giving after the destruction of Jerusalem, he's basically saying this is gonna come down even on us. Like, cause Jeremiah and those guys are down in Egypt at this point. If you're just joining us, that's, that's a long story how they got there. But uh, they're the fi final remnant of the Jews that are left on the earth, other than the ones that were taken off into captivity in Babylon. So the Lord says, declare this to these places. Uh, verse 15, why are the val thy valiant men swept away? They stood not because the Lord did drive them. He made many to fall, yea, one fell upon another. And they said, arise and let us go again to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They did cry there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, but a noise he hath passed 
the time appointed. Now, this is King James language that basically confirms perhaps um, uh, the Bible told us long before history and archeological digs and writings of the hieroglyphics of the Egyptians confirmed that this is what happened. Remember I told you early tonight that the Egyptians retreated in their power, they retreated, came back to Egypt because of the oppressing sword. Um, and, and this last phrase in verse 17, the, the, that Pharaoh, he had passed the time appointed. In other words, he was in a sweet spot and he was able to conquer and destroy, but because he withdrew during his sweet spot, that would be his fall, his demise, and he would become nothing. Um, that's why it says in verse 17, Pharaoh, the king of Israel, is but a noise. He's just a noise, that's all he is. Uh, this is the language of the Bible saying, here's what's, here's what's gonna happen. So what was it that made Pharaoh withdraw from those battles? Um, maybe it was the Lord himself because the Lord had a plan for the Egyptians to be wiped out. Maybe it was the Lord that mysteriously put it on Pharaoh Necho's heart and the soldiers, you know what, we're done with conquering the world, we're going home. Uh, but it's interesting that God is the one who knows the beginning from the end. God knows all things that's gonna happen to the nations. Um, this is kind of proven here. Verse 18, as I live, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and Carmel by the sea, so shall he come. O thou daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish thyself to go into captivity, for Naph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is like a very fair heifer, but destruction cometh, it cometh out of the north. Also her hired men are in the midst of her like fatted bullocks, for they also are turned back and are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity, it was come upon them and the time of their visitation. The voice thereof shall go like a serpent for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes as hewers of wood. Verse 22 for you history buffs and weapon people. Uh, this is one of the earliest mentions of the battle ax, uh, people using the ax in battle and that would later become a real staple during various times in history where men would not be seen without a battle ax on the battlefield. Uh, but this, this is where the Bible says they came out with their axes like, like um, you know, lumberjacks would come out, out of the woods. That's how these guys came to battle. Verse 23, they shall cut down her forests, saith the Lord, though it cannot be searched, because they are more than the grasshoppers and are innumerable. The daughter of Egypt shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel saith, behold, I will punish the multitude of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all that trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterwards it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, saith the Lord. Now, um, interesting because uh, the last two verses of this chapter, uh, after saying Egypt's going down, but, but Jeremiah's got a small word of comfort sort of for the Jews. Um, and it's not really comfort for the Jews that are there with him in Egypt, but the Jews as a nation. Are they gonna be utterly wiped out and forgotten? Well, verse 27, but fear thou not my servant Jacob. That's another name for Israel. And be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off and thy seed from the land of their captivity. That's the people in Babylon. And Jacob shall return and be in rest and at ease and none shall make him afraid. What's gonna happen to Jacob, Israel? Jacob will return to the land. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah. Right now, Israel in Jeremiah's story is desolate. There's no people there. Jerusalem's crushed, totally destroyed. But Jeremiah gives this little word saying, the Jews are coming back and they're gonna be a powerhouse in Israel and nobody's gonna be afraid of Israel or nobody's gonna be afraid in Israel. Isn't it interesting today that the Jews, while there's nations all around them that want to kill them and they're bold about it. You know, the Iranians, you know, what president of a nation would say, we wanna wipe a country out, wipe them off the map, kill them all. What, what country does that? Well, Iran is one. 
The Iranians haven't even tried to pull any punches. Uh, Ahmadinejad, the previous prime minister, president, um, I should say, he was saying, we wanna kill the Jews. The Holocaust never really happened. The Jews need to die or they need to be thrown into the sea. Like this is stuff the president was saying. Now, Rouhani, the, the president now is a little less um, uh, wild with his words, but he has even a more radical worldview than Ahmadinejad. Um, which is interesting, and wants to destroy the little Satan, Israel, as they call it. They also want to destroy the big Satan. Anybody know who the big Satan is? That's us, congratulations. The Iranians want to destroy us too, but um, they're constantly talking about wiping Israel out, and that's part of their fulfilling of their end times eschatology. They believe in the, you know, the Mahdi or the 12th Imam who's gonna come. It's sort of the uh, Muslim Messiah. But in order for their Messiah to come, there has to be massive uh, catastrophe in the world. And it happens by them starting the catastrophe. So they're not afraid to nuke Israel. That's why everybody doesn't want Iran to get nuclear weapons because they've been saying, if we get nuclear weapons, we'll blow Israel off the map. That's our whole goal and plan. They're not even secretive about it. And that's why you'll see the Jews with Mossad uh, blowing up secret facilities in Iran. Like it's, it's an amazing thing that's happening in the world today. Um, you know, the, you hear about these explosions in Iran of these secret facilities being blown up. Those are Mossad agents by the is, Israelis blowing up uh, these facilities where they're trying to make a nuclear weapon so that they can blow up Israel. Uh, the Jews, Israel, forget what the United States says in our Iran nuclear deal, forget that for a second. The Jews are not gonna allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. They're just not. Um, the Mossad, if there's anything they can do to stop it, they're gonna, they're gonna stop it because Israel's not like the United States. We could take a nuclear hit. What happens if New York gets blown off the map and suddenly you know, millions of people die in New York City? Well, that would be horrifying. But guess what? The United States would continue and we'd probably be sort of like the Pearl Harbor thing, you know, where, you know, who was it? Hashimoto or whatever said, we've, I'm afraid we've awoken the giant, you know, a sleeping giant. Um, that's what would happen. If the United States was bombed, we'd lose New York and we'd be so mad that we'd probably blow the daylights out of whatever country did it or even people that we think they might've done it. Um, that's, that's how we would probably handle that. Israel gets one. If they blow up Jerusalem and or Tel Aviv, like Israel's smaller than, you know, like New Jersey. It's a tiny little country. And, uh, the, you know, they could be wiped off the map, map with one big nuclear bomb. So, so um, that's not gonna happen, I'll tell you why. The Bible doesn't say that's what's gonna happen. Now, in the Gog-Magog evasion, there will be a battle that's gonna leave people, and I think, um, boy, I'm getting in the weeds on this one, but um, there'll be people dead on the mountains of Israel in the West Bank that might be radioactively charged. Do you remember what the Bible says in Ezekiel 39, 38 and 39 about you know, the, the, these nations are gonna attack Israel, but their bodies are gonna be on the dead carcasses on the sides of the hills of, of the uh, West Bank. But men of continual employment, if you see a dead body, you're supposed to mark it, but don't touch it. And professional barriers are gonna come and deal with that body. Why would that happen? Uh, in Bible times, they didn't really have any reason. But now we kind of think, I wonder if that's like radioactivity. Uh, so, so will there be nuclear weapons employed? Probably uh, during the Gog-Magog inv invasion or chemical warfare of some kind. Uh, that's scary stuff. But uh, Israel will not be completely destroyed. The Lord will protect them. That's what the Bible says. So anyway, all that to say, um, uh, that's what basically happens here. Uh, he says uh, in you know, verse 27 and 28, fear thou not, O Jacob. Um, for I, verse 28, I am with thee. I will make a full end of all the nations whither I've driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. So Israel's gonna be punished, but, um, but Jacob, Israel, verse 27 and 28, the Lord's not gonna fully wipe them out. He's gonna preserve them. That's the thing. Well, there's the Egyptians. Uh, they're going down. Now, Egypt is a type of what? the world, right? Worldliness, godlessness. Um, and this is gonna be the end of the world. This is what the Bible says is gonna happen. Total destruction to the world. It's gonna happen. When does that happen? This is like a picture uh, of what God's gonna do in the, in the last days where he comes to destroy a Christ-rejecting, 
sinful world. And, and so um, you could go back and kind of read this and maybe see the comparisons of what's gonna happen in the future. Uh, globally, uh, Egypt is a type of the world. We're not gonna be in that destruction, why? Because we're gonna be safely brought into heaven at that point, I believe, the rapture of the church. Chapter 47 is the judgment against the Philistines. Uh, Egypt's a type of the world, the Philistines, um, well, they're a type of the world that is around the, the faithful, the believers, um, in the midst of the believers. The Philistines lived amongst the Jews. And we looked at that on Sunday, verses one through seven of that little tiny chapter. Um, uh, and um, we talked about how long will thy cut thyself? You know, uh, how long are you gonna do yourself in? How long are you gonna mess yourself up? And, um, and, and that's an important study I did at my house because of the ice storm. Uh, people said, Brett, how did, we, 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 were, we live in your neighborhood. There was no power out there. I have a generator. So Sunday services and Saturday night went on. Uh, thank the Lord for a generator. Uh, that was great. Uh, I was living large while you guys were freezing, but uh, no, I'm just, just kidding. It was, it was actually a real blessing to be able to do the, the, the uh, how many of you guys watch Sunday or Saturday night? That, that's great, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fun doing it at home, but uh, so we're ready to roll. Uh, if things go really bad, we, uh, we're survivalists and preppers. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really not, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, so, you know, the Philistines are gonna be wiped out, and they are. You can check that box. The Philistines are an extinct group of people. They no longer exist. But the Palestinians, no. Be uh, faithful to history. Don't listen to the narrative that the Palestinians of today are ancient Philistines. Not true, not even close. It's not even hard to uh, see the not, the, there's no connection there. The Philistines were a Phoenician people that came down from the island of, of the Aegean Sea and you know, Crete in that area. They came down from there and settled in the southern part of Gaza Strip in Israel today. It's called the Gaza Strip. That's where the Philistines lived. And so we looked at that on, on Sunday. Um, you can watch the teaching if you missed it. Chapter 48 now, we move uh, to the Moabites. The Moabites. It says here in verse one, against Moab, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe unto Nebo, for it is spoiled. Kiriataim is confounded and taken. Misgav is confounded and dismayed. Now, um, let's pause. Let's talk about Moab and these places. Um, it, 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 these, these three places, Nebo, uh, Kiriataim, and Misgav, they were sort of the known famous places of the, the Moabites. It'd be like if you were talking about the United States, you'd say New York, you know, Los Angeles and Chicago, like the big cities, you know, or the, the places that were known and famous for some reason. So of the Moabites, Nebo, does anybody know what happened at Nebo, anybody? That's where Moses died and he looked over Israel from Nebo. <clears throat> it's one of the places I'd take you if we can um, sometimes we, we can't do it for various reasons. But when I go to Israel, I always, we go into the country of Jordan, cross the border in the morning, and we go and see uh, uh, that city Jerish that I told you about last week, uh, that's the twin city of Jerusalem. And then we scarf a chicken lunch, and then we go up to Nebo, and we uh, end our journey that day, at least uh, while the sun's barely still up, and we see the sunset at Nebo looking over Israel. And it's amazing. You can see the, if, if it's not too smoggy or, or dusty, um, you can see uh, the lights of Jerusalem from Jordan. It's an amazing thing. And look down to the Valley of Jordan and the Dead Sea and Jericho. You can see all these places from, from the, the, this huge high point, Mount Nebo. Um, <clears throat> and it's where, you know, um, Moses died. It is interesting because um, Poor Moses never got to go into Israel because remember he struck the rock a second time, misrepresented the Lord. But um, I love sharing that story up on Mount Nebo, um, how there in um, Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured in the Holy Land in Israel, uh, probably on Mount Hermon, which is in Israel. And there with Jesus shown brighter than white was Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And I love that because while Moses was, you know, forbidden to get into the promised land, the Lord snuck him in. 
I love that. The Lord snuck Moses in. Uh, you know, it might be a little later, Moses died, but later on he got to be in the promised land with the Messiah, Jesus, uh, and with Elijah the prophet. Um, that's how you and I are gonna get to heaven, by the way. The Lord's gonna sneak us in. We didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, but the Lord is gracious and merciful and he's gonna get you to heaven by his grace. He's just gracious and merciful. We're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. Well, that's Nebo, and Nebo's probably most famous for that but it's there in the land of Jordan. And the reason I share that, those of you that have been to Israel with me, <clears throat> this is the land of the Moabites. Um, uh, and then we'll talk about the Ammonites here in a minute. But the Ammonites were more north and they're in, they're in the area where the city Ammon is today. So that name hasn't gotten too far off uh, from ancient times, Ammon or the Ammonites, same place. So if you can picture on a map, the Ammonites were north the Moabites were south adjacent to the Dead Sea in, in uh, Israel, if you can picture the map there. The Moabites often were mean and uh, hated the Jews and caused all kinds of trouble for the Jews, even though they were sort of family. How were the Moabites related to the Jews? The answer, well, remember, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, but Abraham's nephew, Lot, do you remember when his daughters got him in a drunken stupor in a cave and slept with their dads because they were afraid they weren't gonna have children? And this gross, you know, drunken, incestuous relationship happened where um, Lot, uh, his daughters gave birth uh, to uh, one of the sons' name was Ammon and the other was Moab. So these, uh, Am uh, the, these Ammonites uh, are who, uh, Lot's descendants, but the Moabites, um, they're present day Jordan um, and Ammon and Moab were descendants of Lot. So just kind of keep, so they're distant relatives of the Jews if you kind of think of that way. Well, verse two goes on and says, there shall be no more praise of Moab in Heshbon. Um, by the way, the Heshbonite kingdom of Jordan is linked to this word Heshbon. If you, if you look up Jordan, it's called the Heshbonite kingdom and it's linked to this Heshbon. Um, in Heshbon, they have devised evil against it. Come and let us cut it off from being a nation. Also, thou shalt be cut down, O ma uh, madmen. The sword shall pursue thee. A voice of crying shall be from Horonaim, spoiling and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the going up of Luith, uh, continual weeping shall go up. For in the going down of Naim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives and be like the heath in the wilderness. You know, like a, like a deer that runs off because they hear the crackle of the sticks. It might be a bear or a hunter. So run for your life. You know, that's the idea. Verse seven. For because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures, Thou shalt also be taken, and Chemosh shall go forth into captivity with his priests and with his princes together. Who's Chemosh? Well, he's the god of the Moabites. If you look him up, he's kind of a fish god, sort of like the, the Dagon of the Philistines, which also was a fish, half man, half fish. But the Chemosh god was the god of the Moabites who was also a fish. People liked fish, I guess. Thought they were god-worthy. But it always causes me to marvel that people make their God something that could be carried away into captivity. You know what I mean? Does that make anybody kind of like, were these people stupid? Uh, like we're gonna worship a fish God. Oh, they stole our God. What are we gonna do now? Um, I just don't know that I'd wanna have a God like that. But before we're too hard on the Moabites, what are the gods that we worship today? They're the same gods, the gods of wealth, the, that's, that's what these gods all represented. Wealth, sexuality, prosperity, fertility, whatever the thing that we wanna worship. There was a God for it in the Old Testament days, but today we worship the same gods. But here's the problem, folks. If we worship wealth, it can be carried away. Just like the God Chemosh, it says here of Chemosh, verse seven, shall go forth into captivity with his priest and his princes together. They'll be carried off into captivity. And man, if we make you know, sexuality our, our God or he uh, wealth uh, or health or you know, um, Hollywood or whatever it is that we tend to worship, anything that can be carried away should not be your God. We serve a true and living God that is powerful above all things. 
and nobody can take him away. Nobody can dominate, nobody can defeat. What about Satan? Don't forget, Satan is a fallen angel. He's a created being. It's a mistake to think that it's God versus Satan and man, hopefully God wins in the end. That's just ridiculous. Um, question for you Bible scholars, uh, who's gonna ultimately chain up Satan, anybody? Michael the archangel, not God. If God wanted to chain up Satan, he could just think it and it'd be done. Uh, well, then why doesn't he do that? Well, that's a long story, but it has to do with God's plan and free will given to man to choose one way or the other. Satan is the other choice. You can either choose God or you can choose Satan. You can choose God who cannot be carried away or you can choose Satan or any of his little carrots that he dangles in front of us that can be carried away into captivity. Sadly, these nations are people that followed after these things that could be carried away. Don't be part of that group. And I believe that's just alive and well today. People are still worshiping gods that can be carried away into captivity. Verse eight, and the spoiler shall come upon every city and no city shall escape. The valley also shall perish and the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord hath spoken. Give wings unto Moab that it may flee and get away um, for the cities thereof shall be desolate without any to dwell therein. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Moab hath been at ease from his youth and he hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him and his scent is not changed. Therefore behold the days come saith the Lord that I will send unto him wanderers that shall curse him to wander and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles and Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, their God, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. Pause for a second. Now this, this, these last couple of verses, verses 11 through 13, is packed full of things that I think are really interesting. First of all, let's talk about Bethel that's mentioned at the end of this, verse 13. Um, Chemosh is gonna end up ashamed just like the people of Bethel. What was Bethel? In the Bible, you know the word Bethel means house of God. Um, and it was first there where Jacob laid there and put his head on the rocks and made pillows of stone. And that was famous for a while, but the Bethel became even more famous, sad to say, during, when, remember when the two parts of Israel split in the civil war and there was Israel and then there was Judah. And Judah was in the south, Israel in the north. Well, in, in, in uh, the north, Jeroboam, the king of Israel said, I don't want people going down to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah. So let's build little miniature worship facilities so they don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't want our people defecting. So they built at Dan and Bethel these temples and these idols of golden calves. And Jeroboam said, you can worship these golden calves. Uh, don't go down to Jerusalem, this is great. We've got our own little you know, worship spot. Don't go, to, don't, don't go to 7-Eleven, or go to 7-Eleven instead of go to Safeway. That's kind of the idea. Jer Jerusalem's the big Safeway temple, but here we got these little mini temples that you can worship at, and we'll just worship the golden calf, kind of like we learned from coming out of Egypt. Did that work out very well for the people there? It's amazing how we go back to our stupid things. But Jeroboam made a golden calf. That's another place I take you when we go to Israel. We sit on the very place where the altar was set, where this golden calf was set, uh, there at Tel Dan. But um, all that to say, um, the Lord is comparing what happened to Bethel, which got destroyed, to what's gonna happen to the Chemosh shrines and the priests. Um, and then the Lord gives this analogy that's kind of interesting here. Um, in talking about the way they would sort of purify their wine back in the day. Um, you know, they'd start with stomping on the grapes, you know, uh, the grapes being squished between their toes. Delicious. I had a time years ago where I was doing this men's retreat and I um, was asked to do some fun games. And I was a young youth pastor and probably didn't know better, but I had this contest um, where uh, I would have two guys squish grapes with their, they'd take off their shoes and their socks and squish grapes. And then we'd pour the juice from each tray into a cup. And then whoever drank their cup, the fastest wins. I thought it'd be hilarious. 
And it was. <laughs> uh, my pastor never asked me to do games again uh, at the uh, men's retreat, but um, here's the true story. Um, Dave Day, Jim Corson, two buddies of mine, they were the selected guys. They, they pulled off their socks and shoes and, uh, and I said, you know, I had this big certificate to a steakhouse in Medford. And whoever wins this gets this certificate to get a steak. And so the guys are like, okay. So they stomped the grapes and, um, and uh, it was kind of gross, the green grapes, you know. We poured the stuff into the cups and all the slimy pieces of the grapes and stuff were in there. And I said, okay, we're gonna drink. Whoever drinks it, and Jimmy, Jimmy Corson, who's now a pastor in Newburgh right now, great church in Newburgh if you're in the Newburgh area. But uh, Jimmy, he was young. He was still in his 20s at this point. Um, and uh, and, and I, I, Jimmy said, listen, if, if I could get that gift certificate of the sake, I'll, I'll drink Dave's juice that he squished. And we're all like, oh. And, and uh, so he grabs it and he starts just chugging it, chugging it, chugging it, drinks it down. And Dave, who's a pretty funny guy, he said, man, you're brave. He said, did you see my, I have a really bad ingrown toenail right now. And it was all pussy and gross. And so true story, Jimmy just saw that and just went and threw up all over everything. Um, so that was the end of my games at uh, men's retreats. Um, but it was really great. It was really funny. You say, what does that have to do? Well, you got to come up with interesting things when you're in chapter 48. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. No, this is actually really cool. So what is this? Picture, if you will, these people would squish the grapes with their feet, but the, 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 the wine, the juice would be very impure because of the dirt and the, and the slimy little skins of the grapes and what have you. So, so do you see what it says? In verse 11, Moab has been at ease from his youth and he hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied vessel to vessel, neither gone into captivity. What, what that means is they would take in ancient times their, their slimy wine and they would, they would just set it in a, in a vase and it would, the dregs and the junk would settle to the bottom, the lees. And then they would pour the purified to another vessel and let that sit. And then whatever was remaining, then let that settle to the bottom. Now, if you left it settling there for a while, those dregs, those lees and stuff would take and flavor the wine badly. That's why you need to do this in a timely an important pouring out sort of fashion. And you'd pour from one bottle to another to another until you ended up with purified wine. Then you could store the wine and it wouldn't take on the smell and it wouldn't take on the taste of the lees or the, the gross slimy stuff. And it would become purified wine by pouring out and pouring out. The Lord uses this interesting analogy saying, you guys of Moab haven't poured yourselves out. You, you've been resting on your lees or settling on the lees. Like the idea is you've not been poured out. You've just been letting it settle. But those impurities at the bottom have made you not taste so good anymore. And you've, it doesn't even smell good. And you see that here. What is the idea of the pouring out? The idea is going through trials and difficulties and troubles. That's the pouring out process that purifies. Is that why Paul in Romans chapter five, five said, you know, he says, I rejoice in tribulation because tribulation builds patience and hope and experience. It's good that I'm being poured out from vessel to vessel. Pouring, trouble, trial, difficulty, that's good. And apparently the Moabites just were settling for good things. They never were poured out. They just kind of were resting. And it says, Moab has been at ease from its youth, never been poured out. But because of that, therefore, the taste has remained in him verse 11 at the end, and his scent has not changed. In other words, it's not a sweet fragrance, uh, but it's a horrible stench of the, you know, the lees settled, settling on the lees. So there's some, uh, some things you and I can sort of learn from this. Instead of saying, you know, poor me, I had ice in my house and we lost power for a few days, poor me. Say to the Lord, poor me, Lord, pour me out and let these trials that we're going through Purify, pour me, not pour me. Uh, P-O-U-R me, not P-O-O-R me. Um, I, I feel like we get into this thing, especially, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when I moved to Portland, I was, I was noticing that in Portland, there's more of a Eeyore mentality uh, than when, when other places. Like when I was in Southern Oregon, there wasn't this, man, rain, we live in the dark rain. And maybe it's we're just depressed because of all the dark clouds and rain and cold and ice storms and all that. Maybe that's it. But you and I can rise above that because we, uh, we can say, Lord, 
let these trials and difficulties, that branch that went through my skylight in my house, <laughs> several people that happened to in our church, I feel bad for them. Um, uh, but uh, you know, you say, Lord, what in the world? You know, what's going on here? But ask the Lord, Lord, would you cause this to be another pouring out so that there's a purifying effect in my life? The Moabites didn't have that, so they stank and they were not pure and now they're gonna be destroyed. They're worthless, they're good for nothing. I believe the people who go through trials and difficulty, even catastrophe, will come out stronger and better. Have you ever noticed that some people that have been through real trial and even suffering things that we can't even imagine, have you ever noticed there's sometimes in a, in a solid Christian, a solid believer, there's like a sweet fragrance that comes from them, spiritually. And it has to do with the struggles that they've been through and the challenges and the, and the difficulties. Man, I, I hope that we're not like the Moabites here. Um, instead of saying, pour me, say, pour me, Lord, pour me out. Well, verse 14, how say ye, we are mighty and strong men for the war. Moab is spoiled and gone out of their cities and his, cho his chosen young men are gone down to the slaughter, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near to come and his affliction hasteth fast. All ye that are about him, bemoan him. And all ye that know his name say, how is the strong staff broken and the beautiful rod? Um, these are images of Bible times that meant authority, the authority of the staff and the rod. Remember the shepherd, Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why? Because that's the authority of the shepherd. In this case, they're saying that beautiful rod they once had and the staff that protected their authority, gone. Verse 18, the daughter that doth inhabit Dibon, come down from thy glory and sit in thirst. For the spoiler of Moab shall come upon thee and he shall destroy thy strongholds. O inhabitant of Aror, stand by the way and espy. Ask him that fleeth and her that escapeth and say, what is done? Moab is confounded for it is broken down. Howl and cry, tell ye it in Arnon that Moab is spoiled. And judgment has come upon the plain country, upon Holon and upon Jehazah and upon Mephat and upon Dibon and upon Nebo and upon Bet Dibabthaim. There will be a test on this, by the way. <laughs> and upon Kiriathaim and upon Beth Gamil and upon Bet Mion and upon Keriot and upon Basra, and Mark Basra, that's an important thing. That's where Jesus comes from in his second coming to the War of Armageddon with his vesture dipped in blood. Remember that? He comes from Basra, which is between Ammon and Moab. Um, that's an important place. Basra, upon the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. Verse 25, the horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. Make ye him drunken, for he magnified himself against the Lord. Moab also shall wallow in his vomit, and he shall also be in derision. For he was not Israel a derision unto thee. Uh, pardon me, for was not Israel a derision unto thee? For he was found among thieves. For since thou spakest of him, thou skipped uh, him uh, for joy. You were leaping for joy, you know. Verse 28, O ye that dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock and be like the dove that maketh her nest in the sides of the whole whole's mouth. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceeding proud, his loftiness, his arrogancy, his pride, and the haughtiness of his heart. Pause for a second. Um, we see the main problem with the Moabites is their pride. Um, they're drunk with magnifying themselves. Verse 26, make him drunken for he magnify himself. Verse 29, we've heard of the pride of Moab. One of the sure things that will destroy a city by God, God coming to destroy a city is when they're prideful. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody? Pride, it wasn't homosexuality. That was it too. That was a, a sin for sure. But that's not what the Bible says destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was their pride that they were lifted up with pride, thinking they were better than, smarter than God. And they magnified themselves. Thus, Sodom and Gomorrah got to that place where God said, the end, it's over. And that's one of the things you see in the Bible. Question, is America a prideful nation? Oh boy. Um, 
You know, and, and what's even worse is we're getting uglier in our division. We're divided, but both sides are prideful um, of, of the divide. Like it's really, really kind of a scary situation as I read the Bible and think, man, I feel like we're on borrowed time. When I read the Bible and I see what we're doing compared to what these nations were doing, we're on borrowed time. And I have to say, you know, I'm seeing signs every day of the downfall of this country. You know, even the last few days I've noticed even more, you know, this cancel culture that we've been watching for this past year and, and um, you know, the erasing of things. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interesting things, uh, you know, that have been taken off of YouTube lately. Uh, really important um, teachings from the Bible, churches and prophecy updates and a lot of things are being removed. Um, you know, uh, one Christian TV station from where I'm from down in Southern Oregon, uh, KDOV, uh, they, um, they had a thing where they played something that was controversial on YouTube, removed them for a week uh, from their YouTube channel saying, you know, let this be a warning that if you say anything that we don't like, we're gonna, we're gonna you know, erase you. Um, so this, this whole thing, freedom of speech, that's a thing of history here in America. Like we used to believe in freedom of speech like three weeks ago, but no longer. We don't believe in it any longer. When I was a kid, I grew up in a country, you know, they were defending uh, Larry Flint who died recently, uh, um, who was a, they called him the champion of freedom of speech. No, he was the champion of smut. He was a guy who, uh, you know, started Penthouse Magazine and fought the free speech battle so that he could show his pictures and do his thing. And man, they all fought for his freedoms. But now nobody believes in freedom of speech anymore because it's the Christians who are talking about the Bible that need to be canceled. Um, and it's an interesting time. I'm thankful, by the way, that we have our website because they could cancel. I'm surprised they haven't already canceled us on YouTube. Um, nobody's watching, maybe. Maybe that's good. <laughs> Lord, blind their eyes. Uh, but, you know, if we get canceled off of YouTube, we still have our website. Just, to, just so you guys know that. You guys that are online. If, if we ever get canceled off of YouTube, we still go to our website and it's kind of an uh, isolated thing. We'll still, Lord willing, have our teachings up there. Uh, who knows? The internet, they could, they could figure out ways to shut us down probably completely. Um, the, by the way, our leadership is working on ways to have redundancy in case we get canceled from all the various platforms, um, you know, trying to make ourselves more self-sufficient uh, on the internet because uh, um, we could be canceled very easily on a lot of these platforms. So might have to create our own platform. Uh, so that's kind of what we're working on. But keep that in prayer because we're seeing, you know, a lot of churches like ours being canceled. Um, but this idea of freedom of speech out the window, it just, it's another thing that makes me realize, wow, we're losing our way big time as a nation. And I, I smell defeat coming. And I, I don't wanna be a, a you know, doomsdayer or, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a patriot, I, I love this country, but it's harder and harder to uh, support what we're doing and what our majority is believing. And I don't, I don't see a long-term uh, blessing upon this nation if we keep going the way we've gone. So just something to be praying about. That's one of the great things I think we glean from these chapters. If the Lord's gonna judge these nations, we better hold on to our hats because the United States is deserving maybe even more than these nations of judgment. Pride and arrogancy, always a problem. Verse 30, I know his wrath, saith the Lord, but it shall not be so. His lies shall not so affect it. Therefore will I howl for Moab, I will cry out for all Moab. Mine heart shall mourn for the men of Kirhiris. O vine of Sibma, I will weep for thee with the weeping of Jazer. The plants are gone over the sea. They reach even the sea of Jazer. The spoiler is fallen upon the, thy summer fruits and upon thy vintage. The joy and gladness is taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab, and I have caused wine to fail from the winepress. None shall tread the, with shouting. Their shouting shall be no shouting. From the cry of Heshbon even to uh, Elileh, uh, even to Jahaz, have they uttered their voice. From Zoar even to Horonaim, as a heifer of three years old, for the waters also of Nimrim shall be desolate. Moreover, I will cause to cease in Moab, saith the Lord, him that offereth in the high places 
and him that burneth incense to his gods. Therefore mine heart shall sound for Moab like pipes, and my heart shall sound like pipes for the men of Kirhiriz, because the riches that he hath gotten are perished. The pipes, by the way, in that region of the world were used as mourning instruments for sadness. Um, one thing that I didn't um, mention is verse 28. Oh, that dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock. Anybody know where that's probably being referred to? What's the rock in Moab? Petra, the word Petra means rock. Um, and um, and it's, it was a glorious city of ancient times. Uh, the Nabataeans and the Moabites all kind of lived in that area. Um, and it's, it's one of the amazing places on the earth to see. Um, but this, this place is gonna play a role in the end times even. This rock where they were supposed to flee is where the Jews are gonna flee during the tribulation period. Um, now, there might be a blessing to the Moabites because the Jews in the future are gonna be saved. I'll show you that here in a second. Like the Philistines, we're gonna go for the baldness here, verse 37. For every head shall be bald and every beard clipped upon all the hands of, uh, shall be cuttings and upon the loins sackcloth. There shall be lamentation generally upon all the housetops of Moab and in the streets thereof. For I have broken Moab like a vessel wherein is no pleasure, saith the Lord. They shall howl saying, how is it broken? Um, a broken Moab like a vessel wherein is uh, Oh, pardon me, how is it broken down? How hath Moab turned the back with shame? So shall Moab be a derision and a dismaying to all them about him. For thus saith the Lord, behold, he shall fly as an eagle um, and shall spread his wings over Moab. Karyoth is taken, the strongholds are surprised and a mighty men's hearts in Moab at the day shall be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed from being a people because he hath magnified himself against the Lord. Uh, that's what they did. Prideful, but it was, pridefulness is often, really you need to look at it as being against the Lord. When we're prideful thinking I'm amazing, that's against the Lord. Um, now, of, of course, we're talking about the Babylonians coming, Nebuchadnezzar and destroying the Moabites here. That's all this description here. Verse 43, fear and the pit, and the snare shall be upon thee, O inhabitant of Moab, saith the Lord. He, he that fleeth from fear shall fall into the pit, and he that getteth up out of the pit shall be taken into the snare. For I will bring upon it, even upon Moab, the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. They that fled <coughs> um, stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of the force. But a fire shall come forth out of Heshbon and flame from the midst of Sihon and shall devour the corner of Moab and the crown of the head of the tumultuous ones. Woe unto thee, O Moab, the people of Chemosh perisheth, for thy sons are taken captives and thy daughters captives. Now, there's an interesting final verse here. Yet will I bring again the captivity of Moab in the latter days, saith the Lord, thus far is the judgment of Moab. Um, some argue that the Lord's saying something's gonna happen during the millennial kingdom in Moab. What is that? Well, we're gonna find in our prophecy studies as we have in previous studies that the, the Jordan, the, the country of Jordan in the last days is gonna be somewhat preserved because they will stand with Israel at a, at a very key point in Bible prophecy. And that's why I think there's this little yet verse at the very end of this, the Lord knows what he's gonna do in the very last days concerning that region of Jordan as a friend of Israel. Um, like I said, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24 where when the Antichrist comes and reveals himself, he's gonna make war against the Jews during the tribulation period. And then the Jews are gonna flee, according to Matthew 24, to Petra, that lost city uh, in Jordan. It's not lost anymore. It was lost for a long time until a guy named Burkhart came and found it by playing like he was a guy who wanted to worship Aaron. And the Bedouins there said, you wanna worship Aaron, our father? And he said, yes. And so they let him in. And there was the first guy to see uh, Petra for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he found what was, it was almost like considered to be like um, Atlantis, you know, like a city that wasn't even real. But this guy Burkhart found it. And uh, it was kind of, that's why it's so fun to go to see this place. And it's where they, um, they uh, filmed some of the Indiana Jones movies and stuff there. 
Um, speaking of Indiana Jones, um, and before I leave this Moabite thing um, for the night, um, do you remember in the first Indiana Jones movie where they took those two big tables of stone and Dr. Jones took the paper and he scribbled on it and got the impression of the table of stone? That stone was modeled after something called, in real life, the Moabite stone. If you look it up on Google, uh, when you get your internet back, um, um, the Moabite stone speaks all about this stuff and it confirms the Bible. I love the Moabite stone. Chemosh, the God of the Moabites is mentioned 12 times on the Moabite stone. And the Moabite stone looks exactly like that stone that's in the Indiana Jones movie. Um, um, and it's, it was a great archeological find and explains everything the Bible explains about the Moabites and their worshiping of Chemosh. I love that the more we dig and find archeological ruins, the more the Bible is just confirmed every single time. People that's, that don't believe the Bible haven't really taken a fair look at all the things that have confirmed the Bible as God's word. Uh, so there we'll leave it for tonight, the Moabites uh, and their demise and their potential salvation at the very end. Next week, we'll start with the, um, the, the fourth group, the Ammonites. And we have uh, six other groups to go all the way through chapter 51. And those are gonna be long chapters, uh, but we're, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of the book of Jeremiah. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your word. And we pray that you would let it do its work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, tonight. I pray that you'd find us meditating on your word and thinking through these things we've read tonight um, Lord, I pray that you'd correct us in areas of pride, forgive us where we've been uh, magnifying ourselves and, and magnifying ourselves against you, Lord. I would pray, Lord, that we'd be a people who are, are humble in your sight and put our trust in you and not in our, our uh, little gods and goddesses of this culture. Help us to worship you and you alone. Um, Father, I pray that you would humble the nations, Lord, and, and this country, Lord, if, if there's to be revival in the United States, we need massive repentance, Lord. We need a, um, to be humble before you. So we pray that you would do that, Lord. We don't know what the future holds fully here in America, but we sense that the judgment that is due is, is gonna be coming. I pray that we would look to you and put our trust in you, Lord. So bless these, your people, who've made it out on this uh, this evening on a Wednesday night. For those that are watching online, bless them wherever they are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.